Amen. Good morning. Uh, thanks for being here, and I hope you had a, a great fall break. If you live in Forsyth County, um, I think Fulton's is coming up this week. I hope it's restful, and I'm just really grateful for you being in the room this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that. And meet me in James chapter 3. We're walking through a sermon series through the book of James the entire fall. And um, we're camped out in chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. If you're new to Christianity or whatever and you've got your Bible, it's at the very back. So go to the book of Revelation and go back a couple books to the left and you'll find it. We're going to be in James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18. In 1961, a counselor at a local community center in San Francisco reached out to all-star center fielder for the San Francisco Giants, Willie Mays, and asked, the counselor, asked Mays if he would be able to help out with a 14-year-old boy. This boy, he showed a lot of promise. <clears throat> he was tall, he was muscular, he was good-looking, he was charismatic. He had all the, all the gifts and abilities that you would ever see in a boy with potential, and yet he was going through a really hectic time in his life. Things had spiraled out of control so much that the most recent disastrous choice he made was to rob a liquor store, and his life was starting to spiral to which the point where it would become irredeemable. So the counselor believed that this young man had just suffered from a lack of positive role, male role models in his life, and he wanted him to spend some time with this all-star baseball player, Willie Mays, someone he idolized that maybe could change or shift the track of his life. So he knew it was a long shot, but he reached out anyway. He reached out to Willie Mays, and to his surprise, Mays decided to take him up on the invitation and volunteered to spend a day with this guy. Now, he didn't talk anything about character. He didn't talk about staying out of trouble. Instead, what Willie Mays did was show him his new car, his big house, and his fancy clothes. Mays believed that if he showed the young man the possibility of the kind of life he could have, it might motivate him to live differently. And it worked. The kid, the kid went on to become a professional football player who was so successful that he became a household name and he surpassed even Willie Mays in his fame and success and wealth. There was just one problem. In 1994, when this famous running back was accused of killing his wife, Nicole Simpson. Willie Mays was called to be a character witness for O.J. Simpson and had to decline because he said that their relationship was only connected through professional successes and material things. See, O.J. Simpson, he had learned, he had learned how to imitate Willie Mays' success but not replicate his character. One biographer said it this way, he says, I wonder what the story of O.J. Simpson might have been if Willie Mays would have taken a different approach to O.J. Simpson that day, and instead of showing him his fancy house and cars and clothing, showed him what the character of a godly life would look like. He says, I wonder if he would have enriched himself to protect his character instead of just becoming the next amazing athlete. As we make our way through the book of James, there is an undercurrent throughout the entire book that is subtle, and yet if you miss it, you'll actually miss the entire point of the book of James. The theme is this, God's people are complete people. God's people are complete people. They're the people that are on the same on the inside as they are on the outside. 
Listen, God cares just as much about who you are as what you do. What you're going to see today in James chapter 3 is that the person that you are in the world needs to match the same person that you are in the inside or else you're just a living contradiction. And that's the entire point of the book of James. Like O.J. Simpson, if you aren't cultivating godly character, it doesn't really matter how much success you have in life or how talented you are, you have missed the point. So the big idea today is this. Who you are matters just as much as what you do. Who you are matters just as much as what you do. All right, James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Listen to what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Y'all, what is wisdom? Is wisdom living a life, a long life, and experiencing a bunch of stuff that you can pass on to people so that they don't make the same mistakes? Well, that's a part of wisdom. That's, it seems to be something. It's an essence of parts of wisdom, but it's not wisdom. Is wisdom making good decisions? Well, I think wise people make good decisions, but that's not wisdom either. Or how about the worldly wisdom? You should test drive the car before you buy it. Y'all, that's not even good advice. That's just disgusting. And yet, that is the wisdom of our world. Let me make a connection for you in the book of James so that you can see how it works together. And I want you to see the wisdom of what James is talking about. If you remember last week... James talked about how powerful your tongue is or what you say matters. Well, during that time, there were a bunch of false teachers that were infiltrating the church and they were, they were using big fancy words. And by their big fancy words, they seemed very intellectual and people thought that they were wise and they did that so that they would look down on you. They used their words as a weapon to control people. And then as soon as James gets done with that section of where he talks about <clears throat> how your words are massively important, listen to what he says, who is wise among you? See what he's saying? Is it the people with the big fancy words that are wise? Uh, who has understanding? Is it those people with all the degrees? No, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See, wisdom is not about what you say or how much vocabulary you have or, or what schools you went to or what you studied. Wisdom is about what you do. It's not your intellect or your experience that makes you wise. It's your ability to live out what you believe. You know, there's a difference between your intelligence, which by the way is God-given, and your knowledge, which is what you earn by your studies, and wisdom, which only comes from God himself. You know what we call a person who has a bunch of great ideas and never actually does anything with them? A politician, right? Every four years, vote for me and I'll change the world. I'll make your life better. And that last guy, he did a bad job with all of his overpromises and underdelivering. so you can just trust me. I promise you, we'll get it done. James is saying that's what the Christian life looks like with a bunch of people that talk a big game and never actually do anything. He says, stop using empty words, stop telling me what you're going to do, and show me. See, the Christian life is about godly character and an outpouring of God's grace given to you. That is the essence of wisdom. The book of Proverbs says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know that word fear, it means awe or reverence. Like I think about my kids. I want my kids to have a fear, a healthy fear, meaning an awe or a reverence by how I've treated them. 
Not, not a fear like they're afraid of me, but like a respect that says, man, my dad loves me. He cares for me. He wants what's best for me. So out of the overflow of that, I want to walk with him and obey him. That's what wisdom is. True wisdom is putting yourself in a position of reverence for the Lord. It starts with posturing yourself in a way that confesses that you aren't God. That's important. Because if you, I know we know this intellectually, but we live as if we are. See, when you're not God, that means the ultimate authority over your life, watch this, it's not you. It's not culture. It's not who you idolize. The ultimate authority of your life is God himself, which means you put yourself underneath him. And as you do that, he pours out wisdom. Remember, if you go way back to James chapter 1, what does James say? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask. Ask God who gives generously without reproach. He wants to pour his wisdom out on you. But godly wisdom recognizes that the source of all wisdom is God, not you. So are there lessons to be learned by living a good life? Yeah, of course. Like, my parenting advice and marriage advice is a lot different now that I've got four kids and been married for over a decade. But the reality is, I've seen people with a lot of kids that don't have good advice. That doesn't make my advice good because I have four kids. It means that I'm one kid away from a cult. That's all that means. Right? But the reality is this. Listen, it's putting my parenting and marriage under the submission of God and walking in humility through that that allows the experience that you have and the knowledge that God has given you to come together that creates wisdom. That's it. Here's, here's the point. Wise people are people who put themselves under God and they walk according to what his commandments say. Like Psalm 118.105 might be my life verse. I think about it all the time and I've memorized it. It's your word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Have you ever thought about what that is? Think about it. If we cut out all the lights in here and I just put a light to my feet, what do I see? My feet, right? And why is that important? God's word, watch this, if it's a light to my feet, all it shows me is my next step and my next step and my next step. There might be a cliff right here, but the reality is if I'm walking in humble wisdom with God, he will show me that cliff and that's when I turn. See, that's what wisdom looks like. And the reality is if God had showed you the whole picture, do you know what you don't need? You don't need God because you don't have to trust anything. You just actually see the whole thing. Wisdom says I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to trust you as I walk. Don't miss what James is saying. So who is wise and understanding among you? It's not the people with the most degrees or the most success. It's the people who live out and live under the submission and authority to God's word. Check it out, by his good character, our conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See, there's something to this conduct. There's something to this character. Uh, that, that phrase, the meekness of wisdom, it's, it's quite a fascinating phrase. The, 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 the word meekness, it, it's different from humility. It's actually the Greek word gentle, but it comes from this, this idea where, where the Greeks would train a war horse they would take their horse, and the horse had to be powerful. It had to be strong. It had to go into battle. And yet, if the horse had no control, it was just a wild horse that was good for nothing. So they came up with this word meekness that said, we need our powerful horses, our strong horses, to be so powerful and yet so gentle that somebody could ride on top of it. And, and so that's where the original word comes from. It's this idea, meekness is strength under control. Because a 
powerful horse that is not tamed is useless. Right? A weak horse that is tamed was useless for war. It was strength under control. Now think about how that's connected or related to wisdom. Maybe you have a ton, maybe you have a ton of charisma. Like, you're that guy. You walked into a sales presentation, you crush it. You can own the room. Anytime you've ever interviewed for a job, you were just, it didn't matter what the interview was, you were going to, you're going to smile, you're going to have charm, and you're going to get through it. And yet, at the same time, you're not a team player. You run over every relationship and you see it as a means to an end just to get your next deal. Or maybe you're, you're legitimately the smartest person in the room. Like, you, you get this, right? Based on stats, the lowest common denominator, somebody is at the bottom. Somebody's at the top. And you're the smartest guy in the room, legitimately. And yet at the same time, you never actually make people feel big. You always make them feel small because your intelligence has to put people down. I, I have a friend like this, a pastor friend of mine, that it, it got him in real trouble. He lost his job over it. He legitimately was the smartest guy in the room. And he, he's an incredibly kind guy, and yet he always made you feel so small because he was always so much smarter that his, in, his intellect had to bring himself up to bring you down. Y'all, maybe you're the type of person, you come to church, you know how to play the game, right? You know that you're supposed to dress a certain way, act a certain way. If you're a Christian, you don't show up on time, you show up like 20 minutes late, right? Right before the sermon, okay? You, you know how this goes. You put a good smile on your face, but Saturday nights always get you. The peer pressure, right? The game that's just like they barely pulled it out in the last minute. And you can't help it. So you, 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 you do and you make decisions that are just awful. And then you feel terrible the next day. And you're on this roller coaster ride of emotions. Where, where you know the life you want to live and yet you can't do it. There's a sense in which James is saying that you can think all day long that you are godly. And yet if you don't come under control or restraint to what God has called you to, you're not living in godly wisdom. See, meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is godly power. It's a trust that is so rooted and so deeply trusting in God that you don't have to be wild or unrestrained. You trust that God's going to provide for you, so you don't seek your provision anywhere else. You're so confident in who God has made you to be that you don't have to project on other people to make yourself feel better. Now, if you've been around here a while, I've told you this before. Most of my life, I exuded this, this level of arrogance, honestly. But, but my arrogance, as I've, as I've looked back on it, had nothing really to do with me thinking I was better than you. It was rooted in a lack of self-confidence. See, I, I constantly had to like, over-exaggerate some of the lies in my life. I had, to, I had to make you believe that I was good. I had to impress you. And, and, and what would end up happening is I'd put on a mask that wasn't me, so that you would like me. And sometimes you did, and sometimes you saw through the mask. And, and, and I thought that this made me better, so I would puff myself up with pride, and what I ended up doing was not becoming meek, I became weak. But the weakness was, is you never really liked me. I didn't even like me. I didn't even know who I was until, it wasn't until I became confident in who God made me to be that I started to be more humble. By the way, if you ever do a word study of the word humble in the Bible, it's fascinating. It's never in the noun um, tense. It's always in the verb tense. L listen, here's the difference. You're not a humble person. According to the Bible, you humble yourself. Humility is something you do. It's not something you are. It's putting yourself underneath God. 
And, and when you do that, there, there's this tension that happens in your life. As you put yourself underneath God, you actually become more confident. And that's what happened in my life. I'm just telling you, the more confident I became in who God made me to be, and the more I recognize that he designed me the way that he did on purpose. Like Ephesians 2 said, I am his worksmanship, or, or the Greek word poema, his poetry made in Christ Jesus. And that, that's where meekness comes from. It's power. Power to have a confidence in who God has made you to be, and yet it's under control because it's under the submission to him. Y'all, I'm just telling you, true wisdom starts with understanding just how big God is and how small you are. And if you don't get this right, what you will start to do is you'll start to take God off of the throne of your life and you'll put yourself on it. It'll become self-reliant. And, and what you'll start to do is you'll start to see yourself bigger and God smaller. Now here's the most amazing part. See, God, God was so big that he spoke the universe into being. You realize that, right? He spoke and galaxies were formed. God was so mighty and amazing that the hurricane that just went through Florida was small to him. God is so big that he brought everything into existence. You need to let that blow your mind for just a second. And yet, the most amazing part is, he's not too big that he doesn't want to hear from you. See, he's so small that he entered in. He, he literally stepped off of his throne, the throne that he had made, put on flesh to live among you. He condescended himself. Think about that. He's, he doesn't look at you as small and insignificant. You literally have the ear of God, and every time you speak to him, you bend his ear towards you. The God, the God who is so big, is not too big that he doesn't want to hear from you. See, the God who knows every single gray hair on my head. And according to my six-year-old, I have less of it than I did five years ago. Still cares deeply about me. Still wants to hear from me. He still wants to be known by you. And not only does he want to be known by you, he put his spirit, the spirit of the living God, inside of you. Do you realize that, 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 that the God of the universe knows more about you than you even know about yourself because he resides inside of you? Let me tell you why that matters so much. The things that you hide from, which is natural whenever you feel shame and insecurity, he already knows. He knows your worst parts, and he knows your best parts, and he still chooses you every single time. There's freedom in that. There's wisdom in that, because you don't have to run or hide from him. See, the wise are those who know that God is in control so that they rest in his goodness and they walk in humility and submission to him every day because they understand exactly who he is in his character in essence. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. See, watch the contrast. A wise life is one that trusts God. An unwise life is one that is filled with bitterness and jealousy because it doesn't believe that God's goodness for them is good enough. It doesn't believe that what you have is God's best. I recently uh, read a book that was so fascinating. It's a memoir written by a 101-year-old man who survived the Holocaust. And anytime a 101-year-old man writes a book, you should read it. Uh, and it's called The Happiest Man on Earth. So I'm going to give you the spoiler of the book. On the very last pages of the book, listen to what he said. He says this, Our life in Brussels was not perfect, but we were alive. You have to try to be happy with what you've got. Life is wonderful if you are happy. Don't look to the other side of the fence. You will never be happy 
if you look at your neighbor and make yourself sick with jealousy. We aren't rich, but we had enough. Uh, Let me tell you, just to have food on the table after starving in the snow for years was wonderful. After we were married, we had a beautiful apartment with the view of a Belvedereian castle. It was small, but the view, the pleasure of the view. You don't have to have a castle if you have that view. The best part was the view. I don't want to live in that castle anyway. It's too much to clean. Other people around us had more money. This guy drives a Mercedes. This guy has a diamond watch. So what? What a miracle to be alive and to hold my baby and my beautiful wife. If you had told me while I was being tortured and starved in the concentration camps that soon I would be so lucky, I would have never believed you. Here's what I've learned. Happiness does not fall from the sky. It is in your hands. Happiness comes from inside of yourself and from the people you love. If you are healthy and happy, you are a millionaire. See, true contentment, it's an overflow of believing God's goodness for your life. The the word that James uses there for bitter jealousy, it actually literally means harsh zeal. It's it's like you, you are so jealous of what your neighbor has that you are harsh, and and your your harshness is because you're not satisfied with what you have. So here's what happens. You you end up growing bitter because, well, you're always peeking over the fence, and you're always looking at what other people have, which means that you can never actually enjoy the things that you have. Have you ever been there? I know I have. Here's what it looks like. It, It looks like that I want something so badly that I can't even see how amazing the gifts are that I have. Like, I live in a pretty amazing house. I mean, I live in Alpharetta, right? Which means that any house that I have is better than 99% of the world. It, it's, it's literally, it's the biggest house I've ever lived in. I grew up um, under the poverty line in Florida, and we moved into this house, and man, it was huge. Like, I'd never lived in a two-story house before because I grew up in Florida. So now I've got this big two-story house, and, and I'm loving it, and it's amazing. Until I look next door, and I notice that my neighbor had a full finished basement. And then little by little, my house started feeling smaller. It's a little more cramped. I need a basement. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's like, I, I just got a, a new car. What's new to me, it's not new, but um, I, I love it. Like, it's, it's a gift from God. Until I'm driving down the street looking at the other guy's car, and I'm like, dang, I wish I had that car. And what, what ends up happening is you don't enjoy the things that you have because you're always looking at somebody else's stuff. You know what the root of this is? Let, let me tell you. The root of that is not that you have a problem between you and them. Watch this. It's because you have a problem between you and him. The reality is, is you you need to realize that the bitter jealousy is that you're not satisfied with what God has given you. So you're always looking to what God gave them. And you want more. The point is this, is your life will never be satisfied and it will never be content if you always look to what God has given you and it's not enough because you don't trust his goodness. All right, we, we need to stop. Let me give you a little context, okay? Remember this, the book of James. The book of James, it's written in the mid-40s A.D. Uh, if, if you know your history, Jesus was crucified in 33-ish A.D. So you're talking 10 years after Jesus is crucified. The world is coming to an end, really. A.D. 70, just a couple years later, Rome is going to fall. The temple is going to be destroyed. Things are bad. Nero is doing, he's wreaking havoc on the church. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And the, he's writing this book to the very first Christians who, he tells you in the very part, first part of the book, that they're in the diaspora, which means they're refugees. 
So they're being spread out all over the world. Now here's what's really cool. God's plan was to send them out because they were the greatest church planning agency in the world. So they're doing incredible things. They're going all over the Roman Empire. They're starting churches. They're, they're, they're testifying to God's glory. And yet, at the same time, James is like, why do you have bitter jealousy and, and, and selfish ambitions? You see, here's what James is saying. It doesn't really matter that you're doing all these good things because the motives of your heart is you're always peeking over the fence. Y'all think about it. Planting churches, moving to new cities, it it all looks really good, but James' question is, why are you doing what you're doing? Let me just say it this way. God cares way more about why you do the things that you do than the things that you actually do. Here's the point. These believers, they were doing a lot of really good stuff but they were doing it with selfish ambitions. They were doing it with bitter jealousy. You know, I ask myself this question a lot. I, I ask myself, imagine, or what if, God, what if you were to do some pretty amazing things at City Church? Like, thousands of people's lives are changed, right? The gospel spreads. We named ourselves City Church after Jeremiah 29 to seek the welfare, the flourishing, the shalom of the city. And that actually happens. And, and, and we plant churches and we send out missionaries and all these amazing things happen. Matter of fact, they do conferences. They want to come learn about City Church. And they want to learn how we've done the things that we do. What if, God, you do all, that thing, all those things? And it's more than what we could ever ask or imagine, and yet you choose to use somebody else to do it and not me. Would I be okay with that? See, that reveals the motives of your heart. And God cares way more about why you do what you do than what you actually do. And how you answer that question reveals why you're doing what you're doing. Godly wisdom comes down and the motivation behind that is God's glory, not your platform. The main problem that James saw in the church is that the church was looking for wisdom in all the wrong places. They wanted recognition and they wanted success and they wanted it all to come on them. Because here's the deal, success is not a bad thing. The question is, is why do you want it? Whose throne are you trying to um, glorify, yours or his? Here's here's the point. If you don't position yourself under God, you will take God off of the throne and you'll put yourself on the throne of your own life. You will live for your glory and not his glory. And at the end of the day, what will end up happening is people will start praising your name and not his name. You won't point people to worship him, and people will start to worship you. Do you now see what James is saying when he says, that's demonic? That's demonic because you're not building God's kingdom, you're building your kingdom. And I'm just telling you, it's not always intentional. But over time, people will stop thinking much of God, and they'll start thinking much of you. And you'll do the same thing. When you start to believe in your own successes, you'll subtly take God off the throne, and you'll stop thanking him for using you, And you'll start believing the lie that you just did it because you were um, amazing and powerful and and you had good skills and you earned it. Listen to this. The wise life is recognizing that the source of all success is a gift from God. Like A.W. Tozer famously said, modern religion is focused on filling the church with people where the gospel is focused on filling people with God. See, one is about your fame and glory. And one is about God's fame and glory. Watch this. Your motivations will reveal if your wisdom is from above or from below. So let me just ask you the same question that James is asking. Is your ambition selfless or selfish? Look, ambition, again, isn't a bad thing. You just need to know 
and ask, what's the driving force behind my heart's ambition? Because your heart is the compass of your life. And where your heart is, there will be your treasures and everything else also. So bring this full circle. If your heart is the compass of your life, then you need to change your heart. And how do you change your heart? You can't. But God can. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is this, is that Jesus in Christ, as you submit to him, as you give your life to him, as you step off the throne of your heart, he will occupy it and he will fill it with himself. This is, he wants to give you a new heart. That's where godly wisdom starts. Meekness, the power that's under control, is a heart that's filled with God because it's a recognition that the only way that anything you have is possible is because Jesus himself gave it to you and he wants to. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone, by the way, anyone means anyone, that's you included no matter what you've ever done. If anyone is in Christ, or translation, if he has your heart, He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you want a new heart? Do you want pure ambitions? It's available in the gospel. See, Jesus has already paid your punishment. The gospel is that he lived your perfect life. He died your death in your place. He rose from the dead in order to unite you back to God. That there's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less, because it's not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon what he did. The gospel is that he can change your heart. Only thing you have to do is you have to step off the throne and let him occupy it. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be dishonor in every vile practice. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? If there's always a competition, someone has to lose. And in the church where there's competition, everyone loses. That's why character matters so much. There's a lot at stake. The gospel is on the line when we position ourselves in a position of power and ambition because ultimately Jesus gets dethroned for our little kingdom. Can you not hear? Can you not hear James just screaming, the brother of Jesus who just watched his brother live a perfect life? He lived with him. He saw it. Die a gruesome death. And raised from the dead, and he's watching the church who's now back in bitter ambition and jealousy. And James is like, what are you doing? He's like, don't you get it? It's not about you. That God is empowering you to build his kingdom. He didn't do this so that you could build your kingdom. He did it so that you could humbly build his kingdom. Y'all, this is it. You are an ambassador, as Paul says, of Christ. Think about it. What is an ambassador? You represent the king, and the king that you are representing is the one who built all this. And he has gifted you with the ability to build a better kingdom. If that doesn't get you up at night and excited, I don't know what will. Your authority is derived from the power that comes from the king of the universe. And he has entrusted you with the most powerful and beautiful entity on the earth, his kingdom. Now, if you take this stewardship, and you make it about yourself. According to James and the whole Bible, you are committing the greatest treason on earth. You are, you are misrepresenting the king. And all that does is divide the world and fracture the church. So, with that in mind, what if our mantra instead was we before me? What if that was the mantra? Do you know how powerful that is? Instead of competing against each other, and we try to outdo one another in love. Instead of being served, we are quick to serve. 
right? And instead of trying to be successful, we become the best man at Jesus' wedding. You know what a best man did in the first century? They didn't throw a bachelor party like they do now and pay for a bunch of stuff. What the best man's job was, was to pave the way for the bride and the groom. So what they would do is they would literally knock everything out of the way so that, so that when the bride and the groom came forward, they would fade off into the background so that you saw them. They weren't like peeking ahead, being like, look at me. What they were doing is they were walking away. Now, according to the Bible, marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church, the bride of Christ. What if? What if the way that we viewed ourselves was the best man to the marriage of Jesus and his church, and our job was to put them forward, to remove every distraction, and all we wanted to do was fade into the background so that people could see Jesus and not us? That is powerful. That is powerful stuff. How beautiful it would be if all we wanted to do was protect Jesus and his bride, the church, and what we did is we elevated them and not ourselves, and we just faded off into the background. Here, here it is, verse 17. But wisdom, but wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, the point is this. There are two kingdoms that are continuously and simultaneously being built. God's kingdom and the world's kingdom. And we live in between these two cultures. According to the Bible, there's this theological thing called the already not yet. Jesus has already purchased your redemption, and yet it's not yet fully realized. And in that between, you live between two cultures that are being built simultaneously. And the question that James is asking is, which kingdom are you building? Are you inviting God's kingdom down, or are you bringing hell's kingdom up? God's kingdom, here's what it looks like. The first one is pure and then peaceable. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Can we, can we talk about those really quickly? Purity. Think about what purity is. Purity is deep. It, it's a question that goes deeper than the surface. Here's the question is, are your motives pure? Listen, godly people don't always get it right. Matter of fact, if you ask some people, they'd tell you I'm rarely right, but never in doubt. Right? Uh, we just went through a common pandemic that the entire world went through, and I'll just tell you this, after reflecting back, I don't know if we got it all right. I really don't. I don't know if we got it wrong, but here's what I do know, is every decision we made, we did out of a pure motive. We cared about people. And honestly, I think that at the end of the day, you know what purity does in your motives? Watch this. What purity does in your motives is it makes you peaceable. You know what peaceable means? Here's what peaceable means. It means free from worry. See, godly people to do two things. They, they operate out of a pure motive, and then because it's a pure motive that wants to honor God, they're honestly not worried about the outcome. A life that is centered on the gospel is led by God, and it's free from worry of the results. Listen to me. Do you know how freeing it is? To be a wise person means that you are freed from worrying about the results because, honestly, you trust God in all of it, and you just do what you can do with the information you have at the moment, and then you just don't worry about it. And when, when you do that, you tend to be a more gentle and reasonable person. You, you know what reasonable is? It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that you believe everything everybody says, but it does mean that you're open. Imagine if we were all reasonable on social media. Not quick, not quick-tempered, not, not quick to give a response, but we're actually open to the reality of, man, you might see the world differently than I do, but you probably have a history behind why you see the world 
differently. So, so I'm curious, right? I'm, I'm curious about this, and I'm actually open to change. Listen, only prideful people, only prideful people can never be persuaded or never be changed by anything. Uh, D.L. Moody, he says this, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Are you the type of person that is curious and open to persuasion? Could you be wrong? That is a good question to ask myself all the time. Could I be wrong about this? You, you know what happens when you ask that question? Two things happen. Sometimes you're changed. I'm telling you, I'm changed all the time. But then also sometimes your grounding and beliefs actually become more solid and stable because they're not ignorant. They're informed. And because they're informed and you viewed it from every angle, you actually walk away believing what you believe more strongly. So godly people are gentle and reasonable, which leads to empathy and mercy, right? Those type of people are empathetic and merciful, and they're full of the fruit of the Spirit, which means you begin to overflow with the fruit of the Spirit as you do this, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And, and there's so much power in that because God's Spirit lives inside of you and it's unleashed. So you start to fight for justice. You aren't partial anymore and you're not swayed by people's influence and that makes you a sincere person. Remember a couple weeks ago I told you that word sincere, it's the Latin word, that, that's two compound words that literally means without wax. So they would take these pottery dishes and, and they would have these imperfections in them and they'd put wax in to fill the, the imperfections. They'd paint over it so it looked perfect. And they would go sell it in the market and it looked awesome until you put it on your window seal, and then the sun would come blazing in and it would melt away the wax and you'd see the imperfections. What sincerity means is that you allow the Lord to fill in the, 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 the imperfections of your life and it literally changes you and makes you whole. It's not that you are filling them in with things that will ultimately go away. It's that God is. You become a sincere, complete, or as James would say, perfect person, which doesn't mean perfect. It means mature. When you do this, God fills you in with his spirit and changes you from the inside out. That's what God's people do. They are filled with the spirit of God and they exude the fruit of the spirit which changes their life. Now worldly wisdom, our worldly culture is selfish, cutthroat, jealous, and competitive. We've all experienced that. If you're in your job for 10 minutes, you see this. God's culture brings heaven down. The world's culture brings hell up. Y'all, the church stands in the middle of two cultures, and the question that James is asking is, which one are we building? I read a tweet the other day, and I'm not, I don't agree with what this person says, but empathy and curiosity means we should read it. And then this person, here's what they said. I want to quote it for you. It says, evangelical Christians are killing us in literally every way, denying COVID and promoting fascist-like faith. They also kill us at a heart level. I am so exhausted by their seemingly endless capacity for deceit and casual cruelty. Now, again, I don't think that's right, but that's, that's what the world's perspective can be on us. I, I thought about this. I was like, what if, what if her tweet rather said this? I can't stand those Christians. They are literally killing themselves to make my life better. They, they sacrifice their personal preferences because they love people and they are so gracious it makes me sick. You know what grew the first century church? Go, go read any historian. It would tell you it was that. It was a group of people who were so confident in who God made them to be. It was power under control. That they didn't have to win every battle. What they did is they served people and loved them well. And when people started asking the question, like 1 Peter chapter 2 said, what they did is they pointed people to Jesus. 
Here it is. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? See, one of the most life-changing and God-honoring things you can do with your life is become a peacemaker. Listen, every single person on the planet, including you, and every person in this room, I'm just telling you, after doing this for 15 years or whatever, I can tell you this, and I know this 100% true. Every person in this room is carrying something inside of them, a deep wound. You're carrying a hurt. You're carrying a worry. You might show up, and you might have a smile on your face, and you might be extroverted, and you can work a room, but there's something in there that we carry. And the reality is, is we can either be encouragers or we can be envious. We can be peacemakers or we can be dividers. We can be people who take that worry and that hurt that's deep underneath the surface and we can draw it up for healing or we can cut the wound more deeply and hurt people and scar them worse. See, God's people, God's people aren't there to divide, they're there to make peace. They're there to bring peace to a brokenness in this world. You know how I know that? Because we emulate the author and the perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. And do you know what he did? He came to make peace. See, your God, he stepped off of the throne in heaven. He humbly submitted himself to the Father. He gave up his prosperity to live on this earth, to condescend himself to his own creation, so that, so that by his wounds you might be healed. So that he could bridge the gap between heaven and hell by the cross so that you could come back to the Father the way that it was always supposed to be. See, the ultimate peacemaker, the one that we emulate, is Christ himself. He's the one who came to build a better kingdom. See, God's people, listen to this, God's people always put away selfish ambition and put on selfless peacemaking. They promote unity, not division. Church, the only way that we are ever going to do this is if we are willing to lose at times. You can't, you can't die on the altar of your preferences all the time if you're going to glorify God. I'm just telling you there's nothing more powerful than a group of people who are so committed to seeing God's kingdom come that they stop dying for their own kingdoms. When God starts to change you, he changes you from the inside out. But he changes you on the outside too. See, here's what happens. Here's the power of the gospel. As he changes you little by little by little, you start to see your stuff differently. You stop seeing yourself as an owner and you start seeing yourself as a steward. Let me give you a couple examples. Some of the ones that we tend to struggle with are kids. When God changes your heart, watch this, you stop seeing some, your kids as somebody you own and you start to realize that they are on lease from the king of the universe. They don't belong to you, they belong to God. And God has given you them to steward, to be good human beings who have gospel flourishing in this world, which means it changes the way you discipline them, it changes the way you love them, it changes the way you view them. They are a precious gift from the Lord that he has given you to steward for his kingdom's purposes. So you don't own them, God does. Your money. 
when you recognize that every good gift comes down from above, you stop seeing yourself as it's your money. No, it's God's money. So you invest your time and your resources back into his kingdom to build a better kingdom. You, you realize that, right? God has given you these children to cultivate the earth, to subdue it, and to build a better kingdom. And he's given you resources to get behind and do that. As you see the gospel clearly, you stop viewing yourself as a owner and you start viewing yourself as a steward. And as you do that, what ends up happening is you shift your mentality and that's where meekness comes in. You become the most powerful person on the planet because your life is restrained and under control. You live under God's authority because you realize he owns it all and you build his kingdom and not your kingdom. It all starts with King Jesus. Godly character is an overflow of a changed heart. And the kind of heart that is changed is the kind of heart that builds unity and not division. You know, when Jesus was describing himself, um, in the one place he does in the entire Bible, we quoted it earlier, is in Matthew chapter 11. And, and what he does is he describes himself perfectly. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, come to me. See the unity? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. By the way, I, I, I was always too afraid to ask this, so I always want to clarify. I, I always thought, yoke, that's like in an egg. Now, a yoke was, because I grew up in the city, I didn't know this. It was a farming instrument that you put, uh, you put one um, bull on one side, and it went around their head, and the other bull on the other side, and it carried the load together. Now, what's fascinating here is what Jesus is not offering you is to take it off and put it on him. He's offering to get on the other side and walk with you. He's offering to give you his power, his meekness. So he says, take my yoke upon you. Let me get with you and walk together. And watch what he says. And learn from me, for I am gentle. And if you underline words in your Bible, underline that one. I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know why I told you to underline that word gentle? It's the same exact Greek word as meekness that James uses here. God, power under control. The gentle one, the one who controls the universe, laid down his life to give you power. You see, the perfect one didn't wield his power to rule over you. He did it to lay down his life so that he could unify our souls and to bring them back to ourselves. His power was there to bring us in, not to divide us. Jesus came to sow peace, and he did it by being the ultimate peacemaker. And now here's the deal. You will never have peace out there if you don't have peace in here. And Jesus offers you a peace in here. And he says, come to me. Come to me. All you who work really hard out there, and I will give you rest for your souls. I will change you from the inside out. If you're always fighting this war inside of you and a war out there, you'll never have peace. You know, this week, I, I had lunch with a friend of mine, uh, and, and we're having lunch. He's a mentor of mine. He looks at me, and he says, he says tell, them, tell them about the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't just tell them about the Trinity. Don't just tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the power of the Holy Spirit that is inside of them, that God is ready to unleash himself in this world and through them. Friends, do you realize that you have God's power inside of you ready to be unleashed in you? Not like O.J. Simpson, who, who had everything that the world could offer and yet had nothing. God is ready to give you the most powerful force on the planet, a, a force that gives you purpose and mission. James is saying that there is a mission out there that God wants you to build his kingdom and the power inside of you is the Holy Spirit in you ready to be unleashed in this world. Listen to me. 
if you will just ask. God didn't just come to save you one day, which is what the, the American Christianity is. Come to faith, pray a prayer, and one day you'll go to heaven. He came to bring heaven down inside of you. That God himself resides in you and he wants to change you. And I promise you, if you will step off of the throne of your life and let him occupy the throne, not only will he save you for all of eternity, but he will change you. He will give you joy and peace. He will make you what the guy who wrote the book said. He will make you a millionaire in the greatest of ways. He will change this world through you. He will give you purpose and he will give you mission. Meekness is God's power inside of you living under control as you submit to his authority in your life. That's what James is talking about. Some of us need to step off of the throne and step into power today. We need to make room for God to take over so that he can use us and listen, God is ready and he is willing. Father, I pray. I pray that you would take the brokenness inside of us and make us whole again, that you would take wisdom and give it to us. I pray that you would change the world around us, but you would also change our world. God, I pray that you would give us more of your spirit, even now in this moment, that you would make us meek like our King Jesus. That you would give us the courage to live for you, to die to ourselves, to build your kingdom, and to live for your culture. God, maybe there's people in this room right now that They've never really truly stepped off of the throne of their life completely, that they are still occupying a part of it. God, I pray that you would give us the power right now in this moment to ask you, Lord, to take over, that we would live under your control. God, maybe there's people in this room or watching online, Lord, that have never, have never truly confessed that they need not just heaven and eternity, but they need you right now. Lord, would you fill us with your presence and grace, your power and wisdom. Thank you, Jesus, that the gospel is true, that you really did live our life and die our death. Now I pray that you would occupy our life now. In Jesus' name.